Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Good to see you this evening. I'm not going to read Ephesians 1 to you. That's your homework, is to read Ephesians 1, the whole lot. And if you're really good extra points, you get to read Ephesians 2, and that'll set you up for next week, because that's going to be what we're looking at. Over six weeks, six chapters. So um, Ephesians 1 this week, a bit of Ephesians 2, then you could be a SWAT ready for next week. You'll be sitting there going, oh yeah, I know this one. Um, that song talks about being born again into a family. I, I, um, I remember years ago, when I was, this is another police story, kind of, I know. Um, I, was, I actually at one point was like a licensing officer, which meant I had to go in lots of pubs. Somebody has to do it. And, and I, would, uh, I went into one, and I was trying to get, I've become a Christian now, I was trying to get something from our church to be able to, uh, to go into this local, um, this pub near where I lived. Uh, at the time in Hadfield. So I went to the, uh, the landlady, who I didn't really know at all, um, and had a bit of a policeman chat, first of all, and then said, oh, you know, we're doing this thing from the local uh, church and just wondering like, if this group could come in and maybe you know, do like, some music and stuff in the run-up to Christmas. And she looked at me, and like, it was one of those moments when the piano stops and everybody kind of <laughs> looks. Like, as she said to me, so are you like these, is it like you're these born-again people? And I thought, oh, because something inside of me was like, you know, that kind of comes preloaded for some people with a whole bunch of, of a package of stuff that I know. And it's become kind of, um, you know, all about American evangelists with big hair or something and white suits. And, uh, and I was like, but then I thought, well, actually, no, it's what Jesus said. He said, if anybody is going to even see heaven, they've got to be born again. So all of that's going through my mind really quickly as I kind of manned up and I went... Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and she looked. I'll never forget this kind of older woman who looked like life had been tough to her at times. She just her face changed and lit up for a minute, and she just went, "Oh, that must be so wonderful! That great, just to be born again must be a wonderful thing." So I'm going to talk about that tonight. And I've been to see the Jason Bourne film, and uh, so I've called this talk the Born Again Identity. Hey. <laughs> so uh, I think we've got a slide for that, have we, at the beginning? There we go. The born again identity. Zoe didn't like it, I liked it. <laughs> What's going on there? My mother-in-law. <laughs> well, somebody has to. Right, let's all listen to Jan's Ephesians reading, shall we? <laughs> Before we start, thank you. So, if you were at Kingsway this morning, hands up if you were at Kingsway this morning. Wow, you're back. Great, good to see you. Then you will have heard me start this series opening up the book of Ephesians, and we're calling it the Summer of Change. And the evenings are kind of going to be like extra points so you can dig deeper into it as we also look at it in the mornings. And this morning had a lot to do with identity. Hannah did a fantastic sketch about identity. 
And uh, we're still at the start tonight, and this is going to be the focus, identity. Who are you? If you ask people that kind of question these days, we start to talk about identity, and people will have various markers of their identity, and very often it's to do with what you do, isn't it? That's the question. So many people, I find, have their primary identity based upon who they are, is what they do. But if you end up in your job, if you say you become at work, or you're quite somebody at work, what happens when the market changes and you get laid off? Does that make you a nobody, if you were a somebody? Your identity should not hinge on what you do, on your job. If your job is a secondary identity, that's fine. But never make it your primary identity, because it can go, and it will go eventually. And there are, there's a model up there, there are beautiful people, aren't there, who, um, who get scared of losing their beauty or they get scared of a particular age, they get scared of being 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever it is at some point. And again, how you look should not be our primary identity. The book of Proverbs says beauty is fleeing. It's fleeting. It kind of here today and gone tomorrow. So don't make how you look your primary identity. Some people trade their own primary identity completely and make it all about their kids. They make their life about their children. And of course, it's right to love your children and to love them deeply and look after them. But you did have an identity before you had children and you will, well, I hope you will have an identity when they grow up. This issue of identity is really important for us to figure out and we can't do it without coming to the one who made us in the first place, and who knows us. And so if you're here this morning, you'll have heard me say the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, wanted them to know that their primary identity, once you give your life back to God, once you find your way back to him, is you come to God the Father, and you, you learn who he is, so you learn who you are, and who you are in Christ. It's all about in Christ Time and time again in, in Ephesians, you're going to read that phrase. I think it's like 26 times, in Christ, in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3, I'm not going to read it all to you. Like I said, it starts with, it actually starts, Ephesians 3 starts one long sentence in the Greek without a breath all the way to verse 14. I think he gets excited. Um, but we haven't got time for me to read all of that. I'll just read a few bits. But this is how it starts, verse 3. Praise be, literally blessed be, beraka. It's like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in Christ. And then he starts to list loads of them all the way through to verse 13 without even really coming up for air. When you are in Christ, you're blessed, he says. Bless God for being a blessing God who wants to bless you and the way that he blesses you is in Christ. In Christ, it's like God can't help blessing you because he loves his son. He loves, he loves to bless Christ and you're in Christ, so you're going to be blessed. What do we mean by blessing? Well, Paul opens it up and he uses all kinds of rich images so that we'll get pictures of it. And we're going to look at three images of what that actually looks like tonight. Adoption, redemption, and sealing. Adoption, redemption, and sealing. 
The first image Paul uses to describe what it looks like to be blessed by God in Christ is adoption. He wants the Ephesians to know, remember, and never ever forget their true identity in Christ. So he writes, in love, he predestined. Can we have that next bit? In love, he predestined. Now, some people get all confused about this predestined idea. My understanding of predestined, it isn't about God's got a whole bunch of people on a list that are going to be going to heaven, and he's got a whole bunch of people on a list that are going to hell, and he decides and he's predestined. These people are going to heaven. These people are going to hell. No, What does predestination do here? What's he predestined us to? To be adopted. That's what the purpose is. He's already decided in advance to adopt us. As his sons, I'll get back to that, through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. When you're in Christ... In Christ, you are brought into the family. The day you started following Jesus, and if you haven't done it, today could be the day, at that point you intersect, you connect with the plan that God always had in mind, which was to adopt you into his family forever. Why? Because he wanted to. Why does he do it? Because it made him happy. That's what this says. Why does God decide to do this? Because it makes him happy to do so. In accordance, it says, he chose you. He chose to choose you in accordance with his good pleasure and will. He adopted you because it made him really, really happy to do so. He wanted to love you and he's happy that he gets to love you forever. Not just in this life, but forever and ever. What is your primary identity? Factor this in. God the Father chose out of everybody to love you, to adopt you, to say you're going to be mine and you're going to be in my family forever. Once you understand that, you realise you, you don't earn that. But it makes all the difference when you learn that you're adopted. You never have to earn God's love. See, sometimes people make it like, oh, you can't earn God's love. And it makes it seem a bit unpleasable. No, what it means is you never have to. You never have to earn his love. Paul says, in love, he predestined us through Christ Jesus. Somehow what Jesus did for us when he died for us and when he rose again, somehow that act of perfect obedience when he died on the cross for our sins made adoption possible. For us to be signed into this heavenly process of adoption of course you read a passage of scripture like that and we are bound by 21st century eyes rather than first century eyes maybe some of you have been adopted maybe you've been had adoption happen in your family like there's lots of people in ivy that have adopted children and maybe you've been to a celebration when that's happened it's a fantastic thing it's a very godly thing to do to adopt a child but if we want to really experience this passage more fully we have to understand a little bit more about what the concept of adoption meant for the first people who were hearing opening this letter 2000 years ago and it actually meant even more in some ways I showed a photograph this morning, and here it is. It's of the theatre, the great theatre in Ephesus. 
In your imagination, imagine going back there 2,000 years ago and you're walking among, along with thousands of other people and you're going to go to the theatre. You're going to go and watch one of the most famous plays in, uh, in, in, uh, that the Greeks would put on. It's called Oedipus Rex. Imagine it's about to begin down on the stage. Everybody here already knows the story. They wore masks, the Greeks, to be able to, to be actors. They put masks on. We've got a picture of, of this play being performed in a modern-day setting, and everywhere wears masks when they're doing Greek plays. This is where you get the word hypocrite from, because they would put a mask on, because they probably weren't very good actors. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, if you were a Greek, you would know the story. It had been going around for hundreds of years. The story was of King Laius and Queen Jocasta of Thebes, who were warned by the oracle, who was a kind of prophet, that they were going to have a son, but the son that they would have would grow up and would be a threat to the throne. So they had to get rid of him. That's what they decided they were going to do. So the, the queen gave him to a shepherd because the king rejected him. And they would get the king, the king takes the baby's feet, pins them together, gives them on to this shepherd who then takes the baby out into a field to leave the, the, the idea is he'll leave the baby there. It's called exposure to die because it's exposed to the elements. That's what they did in those days with babies, abandon them in a field. But the shepherd, somehow he can't do it. He looks at little Oedipus and his feet and he thinks, look at his lovely, cute, swollen feet, big feet he's got. So he calls him swollen feet. That's what Oedipus means. <laughs> and then Oedipus, big feet, is raised by the king of Corinth and the story goes on. Now, the part about King Laius and the queen just abandoning the baby and leaving him out in the field Maybe that's, is that a shock to you? It's a shocking kind of a bit of the story. But for the people who are watching it in those days, that wouldn't be a shock at all. Because in Roman culture, it was very commonplace to do that. It was a completely commonplace decision, not just for a king, but for anybody, any man, to be able to do that. When a baby was born, it would be placed at the father's feet. And then the father would either pick the baby up, which said he was claiming it, or else he would turn his back on it and reject it and abandon it. And then they would take the baby, if he'd abandoned it, and they would leave it somewhere on a rubbish dump or out in the fields to die. Why would he do that? Well, maybe because he'd had enough children. Maybe because this was a boy and he wanted a girl. More usually it was because it was the other way around, because actually they valued um, the, the, the boys a lot more than girls. Or maybe he saw a birthmark or a defect or something that displeased him. All manner of reasons why the father would reject the child. Very rarely would they just kill the baby. They wouldn't do that. What they would do is they would take them outside and they would expose them to the elements. And the idea was they're saying, we're going to let the gods decide their fate. We're, we're, it's, not, it's not me, I'm not killing this baby. The gods are deciding its fate. Very often in Ephesus, however, the child would be taken from the place where they were dumped and brought to the Agora, which was the... The marketplace was a huge marketplace there in the centre of, of Ephesus and would be brought there and the only per, the person who would do would take them and that they would raise them to be a slave. Or they would take them and raise them to be a prostitute because there's an awful lot of, um, of, of, of worship of that kind that was going on in the temples. That was the culture in the cities where Paul was writing to. When he talks about adoption, he's, he's writing to an abandoned culture, abandonment culture, generations of commonplace abandonment of children. Outside the eastern gate of Ephesus, 
Outside the, the harbour, just near the harbour, there was a rubbish dump where people would frequently bring, bring the babies that they didn't want. A doctor to the north of Ephesus in a city called Pergamon, which also gets mentioned in the Bible, wrote a manual on how to measure the dimensions of a child if you found it and assess how old it was and whether or not it was, the odds were good of picking one that would grow up to be a, sl- a strong enough one to use as a slave. And the, the slave children who were brought into the homes were the lucky ones by comparison to the ones that were used in the temples. This is what we're talking about. I don't know if there's anybody here being abandoned, felt abandoned. It's a hurt that can define a person's life. But Paul writes to these people who knew all about abandonment and he says, in Christ, in Christ, if you're in Christ, since you've come to know Jesus, that is now the defining moment of your life. The defining moment of your life is not who threw you out, it's who took you in. God picked you out. God picked you up and he's come to take you home. And he was so happy to do that. I remember when I was at school, I was talking to Andy about this recently. I was, uh, there's a girl in my class, I'd been there about a week and this girl came up to me, Sarah Morton. And she said, uh, Jackie Matley wants to go out with you. <laughs> and I was like, flattered, but didn't know what that meant really. So um, I went, all right then. <laughs> and we um, didn't really do any going out. I didn't really know what going out involved. But I kind of nod to her in class a little bit. And this carried on for a couple of weeks. And then one day I was walking up to the gates and Sarah Morton came up to me and she said, Jackie Matley's dumping you. (laughs) And that was my first romance. (laughs) It's horrible, isn't it, that phrase? Being dumped. You know? She's dumping you. Isn't it horrible? You know, I don't know if you've ever been been dumped. Some people you end up being dumped dumped by life. You could be dumped by a a fiancé, dumped by a spouse, dumped by a, a job. Dumped by, um, you know, I remember hearing a guy tell me in a story, well, it wasn't a story, it was his life, and it, it was not in this church, in a previous church, about how he could, the most defining moment memory for his life was when he was six years old and his dad was walking out of the house again and this was the time he'd never see him again and he, was, and he said he remembers holding onto his ankles, begging for him not to leave. I see, I saw, that's going to do something in here and there's so many behavioural issues and longings and hurts that people carry in our generation too as a result of this abandonment that takes place. And so I said this morning, Paul was, ends up in Ephesians addressing issues around sexual immorality and gossip and lying and theft and he, he brings some behavioural changes that he says there, some truth to that. But before he ever gets there, he just wants to bring a lot of grace Grace, 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 grace to people who've been hurt like that. So Paul's basically putting all of that on hold and he's saying, do you know what? Before I tell you how to behave, I need to tell you that you belong. Some people have heard about a God who just wants to tell them how to behave. I'm here to tell you about a God who wants to tell you, you belong. You belong. There's a place of belonging for you. Adoption, the most defining moment of your life is not who left you, 
but who loves you. Who's come to love you. It's not who threw you out, it's who brought you back in. I don't know yet whether you've come to the point of receiving and accepting for yourself in your heart that unconditional love demonstrated so clearly at the cross that you've ever responded to the invitation that says, yes, I want to be in Christ. But when that happens, something permanent, something powerful happens. God picked you out. God predestined. God already had a destiny in mind for you. He already had a plan in mind for you. And he predestined that you would be his son. He would look at you as his son, which as we'll see has got nothing to do with your sex. It's got everything to do with inheritance. Because in those days, it was the son who inherited. So when he says he's predestined you to be his son, he's basically saying you get everything that's coming to Jesus. You get to share that inheritance with him. He, he picked you out, he picked you up, he brought you home. He adopted you into his family. That's image number one, adoption. Let that sink in. You know, if, if we could get that in our hearts... So many orphaned hearts in the world and in the church. So many abandoned hearts. And the Holy Spirit wants to come and, and tell you, you're adopted, you're chosen. You've got a family. That's, that's why Christians don't talk just about Christianity as being a religion, but we say it's a relationship because it's a relationship with a father who loves us, who says, you are my precious prized daughter. You are my precious son. And when you know he adopted me. Can you say that? He adopted me. And let's say it and let it go into our hearts as well. He adopted me. This is all Paul's going to want to do for the next three chapters. He's going to say, remember these truths. Remember. He chose you. He adopted you. He decided. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Adoption, picture number one. Picture number two is redemption. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I love that word lavished. It's like, it's like I, I like to put the butter on. Yeah, it's like lavished it on. That's what God does. He's not like sparing a little bit. He's like, he lavishes his love on us. The word redemption, it sounds all kind of heavy and theological, but it's not that difficult to understand. It basically means buy back. The dictionary says to regain or gain possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. That's what redemption means. And the Greek word that Paul used there is actually totally linked to the idea of slavery. Particular word that he used. So to redeem something, using the word that he means here, is to buy it back so now it's free. To buy it back to set it free. What is it that buys us back to set us free? Jesus' blood does that. Nothing else does that. And again, don't look at this through the 21st century lens because I know we still have the curse of modern day slavery in the 21st century. We've still got to fight that. I was listening to a thing on Radio 2 this morning, an amazing woman from the Salvation Army talking about how we've still got that horrible stuff. Millions of people still being trapped and, and living as slaves. You know, we've not defeated that giant at all. But Ephesus was host to the largest slave markets in the, in the Roman world. People came from all over the empire to the huge agora there, the marketplace, which is like the size of the Trafford Centre. And you could go there and you could buy cloth from Thyatira. You could buy spices from the Far East. 
Or you could buy people, men, women, and children. Paul came and he spent two and a half, nearly three years, right at the hub of the slave trade of the empire. In a, in a population, in a time when in any city, a quarter of the population were slaves. That's what it was like in the Roman Empire. The average wealthy family could have up to 200 slaves. Varying in price, dependent upon their skills, their age, their beauty, and their strength. Slaves of high value in those days would work as architects and doctors and, uh, and, and musicians. Next level would be looking after children, would be nannies and, and shepherds and guards and horse keepers and miners and, and agricultural workers. They'd all be slaves. Then there were galley slaves and sex slaves, right at the very bottom. And if they tried to escape, then they would be branded or else sent to the games to be torn apart by wild animals or killed by gladiators. So imagine, again, you, you go into the Agora, into the marketplace, and you meet a group of Jesus followers. And among them, because this would be the case in the church of Ephesus, there'd be some people who were free and many people who were slaves. Slaves cannot speak unless they're spoken to, but you see a man standing there, and so you ask him, who do you belong to? And he says, I belong to Julius, who happens to be a rich man in Ephesus. When you ask how this happens, he says, well, as a baby, my father abandoned me, but I was raised as a slave. I've been doing household stuff since I can remember. And at the age of 13, somebody brought me along here to the Agora and they sold me. And Julius bought me. And he said, well, can, can I ask you a personal question? How much, how much did he pay for you? And he would say, well, I was strong. So he put me on the, on the, the block, the slave block, and they put a, a pendant around my neck, which is what they would do to put the price of me and the for sale sign. And it said 30 pieces of silver. Uh, but Julius bid low and got me for 25 pieces of silver. And that's the price that he bought me for. Now, Paul is writing, as I say, to slaves in Ephesus. And as we'll see later on in chapter 6 of the letter, he addresses them directly. But before he starts to speak to them about being slaves and about how to live as a slave and what that would be, he wants them to know your primary identity is not that you're a slave. Your primary identity is not whatever you do. It's who you are. It's not about what you do or what you don't do. It's about who you are, even if you're a slave. Your primary identity is, is this. Because somebody paid more for you. Somebody paid more for you. Whatever you get paid or whether you don't get paid, doesn't matter. Somebody already paid an amazing price for you. Julius um, couldn't afford to pay or decided not to pay the full price for you, but somebody else did. Jesus paid the price for you. When Jesus hung on a cross, he was paying the price to bring you back so that you would belong to God. And once that full price was paid, nobody else ever has to pay anything else. See, Christianity is never about trying to be good enough or do enough good for God so that he finally puts up with you and lets you be in heaven with him. That's not what Christianity is about. No, we are slaves to sin, Jesus said, but God bought us. God redeemed us. He paid the price to set us free 
through that bloodstained cross. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The idea is that God will never, ever again, he's never going to punish you for anything wrong that you did because somebody else already paid the price, already paid the full penalty for that. So Paul is writing here to a culture where people were bought very cheap and sold very cheap. And he says, somebody bought you at the highest, highest price. Do you know what that means? You belong to him. Someone paid for you. You belong to him. God's antidote to abandonment is adoption. God's antidote to you feeling worthless is redemption. You ever feel unworthy? Ever made to feel worthless? Think about the price that was paid for you on the cross. And Paul would go up to that slave and he would say, you know what, your primary identity is not that you are owned by Julius. Your primary identity is in Christ. In Christ. Jesus bought you. You belong to him. Later on in Ephesians, he writes to slaves and he says, remember, it's actually him you're working for. Whatever you do, he says, work at it with all your heart as though you're working for the Lord because from him you'll receive a reward. Well, when I'm gonna, if you, in case you're thinking, well, is the Bible condoning slavery? No, it's not. We'll get on to that. People say the Bible condones condone slavery. No, it doesn't. I talked this morning about this. What, we do what we do because we think like we think. Knowing who we are changes us more than trying to change my own behaviour ever could. So Paul says, remember who you are. In fact, remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. Remember he adopted you. Remember he redeemed you. And if you say that, say it. He adopted me. He redeemed me. He thought I was worth it. Isn't that amazing? He thought I was amazing that he would, he would come and pay that price for me. We're adopted, we're paid for, and number three, we are sealed. So imagine now you go again. Back to the, the Agora, back to the courtyard, and you notice that this man actually that you're talking with, this slave, has a tattoo on his neck. That would be the seal of Julius, because in those days, one thing that they did sometimes to, to, to say that somebody belonged to somebody else is that they would seal them, they would tattoo them, they put a tattoo on them. Ephesians 1.13 at the end of Paul's very long sentence, he says this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul's saying, do you remember years ago I came to you and I preached about the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. I, I spent three and a half years. He says, I often did it with tears in my eyes when I told you about Jesus about what he'd done and what the cross means for us and how it changes and the difference it makes. And he says, remember when I told you, you, you received it, you believed that good news. When that happened, something happened. It made a difference forever. There and then, invisibly, you were marked with a seal. You know what a seal is? I don't mean an animal that bounces balls on its nose. There's a word that Paul, that Paul uses sometimes in the Bible for seal, and it's the Greek word which now it means engagement ring. That's not this word. Sorry. We'll get to that later. It is good. In another sermon. The word for here is 
Sfragizmo, sounds Italian. The Sfragizmo seal was the legal mark of authority and ownership in a house in those days. It was like that signet ring that you would take and you would place it on the wax to seal the document, to protect the contents, to give your authority over it. Nobody would break that seal unless they were authorised to do it. Even today when you, you, know, you might be buying a house or whatever and they'll get the documents and they'll legally they'll seal them or it could be a will or whatever. That's the kind of seal that's being talked about here. It's a mark of ownership and authority over something or somebody. Who, who watched Gladiator? Since we were talking about great films earlier. Gladiator. Do you remember there's a bit on there when Russell Crowe has got SPQR and it's tattooed to show that he's in the Roman Empire, a Roman army on his, on his arm and he digs out the tattoo, etc., to hide who, he, who, he's, who he's from. Well, that's like the mark of the emperor. If, if slaves ran away after being tattooed, they would actually brand them with a hot iron. Sometimes a very visible place so that everybody would know. A brand was a seal, a mark of ownership. But, so Paul's writing to this kind of culture in language that people will understand. In, in a, a place when, when people get abandoned, where life is cheap, where you are bought and you are sold and worth nothing, he says, no, you are adopted. You are paid for and you are sealed. You belong to Jesus. That's who you belong to. In Christ, when you came to believe, all of that happened. If you feel like you don't belong, remember who you belong to. God says, I've adopted you. You're mine. I've paid for you. You belong to me. And I know that the world has changed since then, but actually, has it changed that much? Because who do you know? Do you know somebody who feels abandoned? Maybe it's you. Do you know somebody who feels worthless? at times those people need to know God chose you and he's paid the highest price for you anybody here doesn't really know where they belong you belong to Jesus you belong to Jesus that's your identity to know to remember and never ever forget your true identity in Christ somebody here maybe the relationship that you hoped for would provide that direction and that, that future, even that identity for you. And it didn't last, it didn't work out that way. And maybe you feel broken and alone as a result of that. Well, Jesus says to you, you are mine. You are mine. You are mine. You belong to me. Somebody else had a role, a station in life, if you like, that helped to define you. And then that changed and now who am I? The Father says, Jesus says, you are mine. That's who you are. You're mine. That'll never change. That letter in Ephesus was written to churches full of people. Some of whom would be in that congregation branded. Some of them would have tattoos all over them. In very visible places to show who they belong to. And the Apostle Paul wanted them to know. Whoever else the world says you belong to, whatever all those outward signs might say, you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus Christ. Let's, can we stand if you're able to stand? And we're just going to say these things together. In Christ, I think we've got, a, we've got the words for this. Let's have a look. Oh yeah, let's do this. Ready? He adopted me. 
He paid for me. I belong to Jesus. Close your eyes. Burn those words into your mind, into your heart. I'm going to say it again. You can peep if you want. Ready? He adopted me. He paid for me. I belong to Jesus. What about waking up every morning? You can say that. He adopted me. I never need to be abandoned and feel abandoned. He paid for me. I never need to feel worthless. I belong to Jesus forever. So I'm free. I'm free to give and receive, change what needs to change. I'm free to go wherever he leads me. Do whatever he tells me. I'm free to build healthy relationships based upon how special and valuable he says I am. I'm worthy of being treasured. I'm free to parent without having to be my child's best friend by doing whatever they want. Instead, I can raise them and love them and release them into their destiny too. I'm free to grow old, but young in spirit. I can live free and I can even die well. Because when that happens, all I'm doing is going home to be with the one who adopted me, who paid for me, and who I'll belong to forever in Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.